This is episode 61 of the Inspired Energy Podcast with Murray Guest. And in this episode, I chat with Aaron Carney, a Newcastle-based multi-award winning broadcaster, photojournalist and sports commentator. Aaron is also the director of Axe Media International and is in demand across the globe for his experience of broadcasting, commentary, storytelling and innovation. I absolutely loved this conversation with Aaron. We had so much fun, talked about a whole range of topics and I can't wait for you to hear this conversation. We talked about sport, around sport development, around our local town of Newcastle, um, around COVID-19, around journalism and um, the integrity of journalism right now. Uh, Aaron and I um, have been bumping into each other for many years. I used to watch him on Prime News in the early 90s and have seen him over the years at different events and I've always loved catching up with him and it was such a, a treat to have this conversation and to talk through all these topics with him and I know this won't be uh, the only time there'll be more of these conversations because it was so valuable and so insightful so I hope that you get as much of this conversation as I did with Aaron Carney. So Aaron, welcome to the podcast. I am excited to be chatting to you today. My memory of you goes back a long way, early 90s, watching you cover my brother's rally stories on Sport on Prime. Yeah. And yeah, and then over the years, we've connected um, a range of times. And of course, I've been listening to you on the ABC and now you've moved on and doing different things. Mate, how are you? Uh, the answer to that changes almost on a uh, minute by minute basis at the moment, but I don't think I'm Robinson Crusoe there. I think uh, everybody at the moment uh, is a short walk from a rooster to a feather duster and back again, but uh, no, I'm, I'm great. And uh, actually for all of the challenges and there have been many in recent times, uh, I'm, it's given me lots of cause for, uh, celebration and lots of cause for calibrating how fortunate my circumstances are. You know, I wouldn't want to be an 80 year old woman in a fifth floor walk up in Northern Italy right now. Put it that way. Yeah. Well, I think that we were just talking off air before mm. we started the podcast about that gratitude and perspective. Yeah. And that's something that I've um, certainly, I'd like to say I've gained more of this year and the clients I work with, they're talking about that as well um, and appreciating those little things in life. Um, so for you in this past couple of, you know, months, actually it feels like years. I don't know how long it's been. <laughs> it does. I don't even I know what a, day it is. I saw a thing the other day saying, I can't believe how young I look in photos from this morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that. It is a bit like that. So tell me, <laughs> tell me on your, you know, your gratitude list or perspective list at the moment, what's at the top? What are you really appreciating at the moment? Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say that because, uh, at least part of the lockdown experience has been, I feel like uh, me personally and uh, as a family, in some ways we've been training for this in a perverse way. Mm. Uh, it, for example, each night when we sit around the table, we actively have, uh, we go around the table and do uh, uh, somebody who's in my thoughts and something that I'm thankful for. And recently we've added and a success that I had today because successes might've been a bit few and far. So we've done that as, uh, as a ritual. Mm. Um, and it is really a ritual. I mean, obviously the five-year-old gives a certain kind of answer and, um, but what it does is it 
momentarily makes you get out of yourself and the busyness of life and uh, actually take a drone eye view, if only for 30 seconds. And so we've done that uh, systematically over time. And now it suddenly feels really important and really functional and whatever. And so look, uh, without diving too deep on uh, philosophy too early in our chat, uh, I live my life uh, with a series of uh, benchmarks and I look at my imaginary perfect scenario and my imaginary horror scenario and if I do that I'm generally running about an eight and a half or a nine out of ten at any given point and uh, that remains true even in the challenging circumstances so I'm very lucky to live in Australia both practically you know we have more sunshine and it's easier to socially distance and there's state recreation area you know 500 meters from my home all of those sorts of things and then you know there's the the freedom that we have here there's all of those sorts of things um the people who i'm locked down with i'm quite fond of <laughs> that isn't everybody's experience um yep. and you know and i am healthy and on, on some level i'm afraid of covid but as with all things in life i feel like i I've given myself the best chance of surviving it uh, if it comes my way. So, I mean, I'm thankful on every single level. Yeah, I, and I appreciate that. And I, I think it's a very similar path to yourself around appreciation and, and even that preparation for things like now. As a family, we have been connecting more over dinner and we used to play the alphabet game every night and different things. We've started Topic Jar. So Topic Jar is each week. Oh, nice. We, everyone throws a piece of uh, paper with one topic in it into the jar and then we draw one out and then you've got the week to prepare and then present that back to the family. And we've had a whole range of topics from um, why mullets are cool <laughs> through to black holes and where do they come from. So it's like a big range. But again, it's that connection with family, which you know, is one of those little things I think that I'm hearing lots of people really appreciating right now. And and uh, like you, I'm I'm happy with who I'm connected with and 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 within the in the in the home. Yeah. Um. Uh, so, is there anything you're missing? Uh yeah. I mean, I miss travel. My entire life was travel. In mm. 2019, I had arguably the best and most successful year of my life i worked in 22 countries i went to oxford i went to a world cup we created all sorts of historic i had i had i knew 2020 was not going to be able to top 2019 <laughs> i didn't think it would get so far under the bar of 2019 so um you know i miss my life i had a really really good life and it doesn't mean as i've just said doesn't mean i hate my life now or doesn't mean i'm miserable i'm not but there was lots of awesome about my existence that has ceased to be at the moment. But mm. again, uh, that's a very selfish or inward looking way of doing it. You know, the, there's also 50,000 people in the U S right now who uh, wish they had my things to complain about, you know? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, so I all, all contextual. Yes, I miss the, yes, I miss it. Terror. I do miss it terribly. And at times, like, uh, let me put it to you this way. I was talking to a friend the other day, and uh, this is said without judgment of other people. This is just about me. Um, if life is a poker table, right? Yep. And in February 2020, we're all sitting around, 
some people had $50 worth of chips on the table and some people had $100,000 worth of chips on the table. And so therefore, if you lose the hand of 2020, some people lost more than others. So I feel like I, I had a really fat stack of chips that went away from me in the last couple of months. Yeah, and, and I think what I know from you is that you really appreciated the work you're doing last year and the travel. And maybe now it's like, I appreciate it even more. Oh, unquestionably. And um, part of the busyness of all of that was you were in the car driving at high speed the whole time. I'm talking metaphorically, not yeah, literally. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and so those moments of pause of why do I love it? What am I achieving? What is my motivation? Uh, there perhaps wasn't a lot of time for that reflection. And I have certainly had, uh, I mean, this is going to sound absurd, but I mean, we were watching a TV series the other week and there was um, like an international diplomat who landed and was met in a car and driven and then met with the politicians and blah, blah, blah. And I was sitting there in my underpants, you know, <laughs> watching it on the left. I said, to my wife, that was me. That used to be me. You know? So yeah, the, you know, there's, um, uh, if, if you have been fortunate enough and yeah, there's hard work and all that sort of thing, but there's also a hell of a lot of fortune. Uh, if you've been fortunate enough to carve out a life that you enjoy, then obviously uh, you're going to miss it when it goes away. Yeah. I, I, I very similar to you. I do. It was doing a fair bit of travel with clients mm. around the place last year. I don't, I, I would often see your backside disappearing out of Williamtown airport. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't miss the train trip to Sydney. I'll, get, I'll yeah, tell you that. Yeah. Right yeah, now. yeah. Yeah. That, that particularly one on the way home. Now I just want to talk a bit about mm. that fantastic work you're doing in the Pacific. Mm. Um, just to help everyone understand the impact and the type of work you were doing in the Pacific and how sport and sport journalism was making such a difference. Help us understand what that means to the people of the region there. Yeah, it, it's the actual uh, logistics and the process and all of that is complicated to explain. I know my mum gets frustrated because she used to be able to say, he's on the TV or he's on the radio and everyone understood. Now it's quite difficult for her to explain uh, what I do. But basically I had a number of prongs to my work. I was in and am in, uh, even though we're on the holding pattern in international media development. Mm -hmm. So that manifests in a range of different ways. So earlier this year, for example, I was in Vanuatu teaching mobile journalism. So if you're on a remote island like the ones that were just hit by uh, Tropical Cyclone Harold, how can you create uh, some cohesive news coverage and get it back to home base that that can then be distributed to the world? So international media development from a sport perspective, it was, uh, for example, last year, we did the first indigenous Pacific language coverage. So we need and Mishlama of the Women's World Cup. So I trained those commentators and took them to France. That's what it looks like there. Sports diplomacy. So for example, in the last week, uh, I've been involved in scripting some stuff for the young Matildas who have done a diplomatic outreach to the victims in the Pacific, um, not only of COVID, but also of uh, Harold. Yep. Uh, there's the international sports development stuff, and we can get into uh, that if you would like. Uh, the people 
there is a nuanced distinction between sports development and sports for development. And very briefly, the tweet version is this. Sports development is when you go to Tonga and see a 120 kilo, highly athletic, Jonah Lomu style 15 year old, right? Mm -hmm. And you go, I'm going to get him for the Auckland Warriors or I'm going to get him for the Newcastle Knights. And then you bring him out, put him on a wage program, get him cash. That's sports development, right? Gotcha. So who is building a new grandstand in Vanuatu? That is also sports development. Sport for development is where you create a schools program where eight-year-old boys play against eight-year-old girls. I'll give you a a perfect example. I've just done a social video in my earlier trip to Vanuatu. They have a program called Spiderball, which is modified water polo. And essentially, the game incentivizes equality. So unless the girls are involved, you don't do as well, blah, 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 blah. So it is using sport to develop a society. And so I've been involved, uh, A, in the delivery of that, but overwhelmingly in the communication, dual-facing communication. So if you're in Wagga, you can see how your tax dollars are at work in something like this. And if you're in Kiribati, you can learn about how disability uh, sport is changing people's lives. So, geez, if that was the tweet version, you wouldn't want the uh, war and peace (laughs) version. But yeah, you can see why it's complicated. Yeah, but I can also, I feel like it's a much more in-depth sort of program like you're saying yes that's important to identify natural talent and develop that in someone and give them every opportunity to achieve their level of performance but i'll be honest the second part of that story is a bit that gives me the tingles that's the bit that lights me up because that's got this this ripple effect it's got longevity it's impacting societies and communities um i bet you get the buzz when you're over there doing that Hugely so. And uh, it's addictive <laughs> in a number of ways. Uh, to, to pick up the thread that you just said there, though, the why it matters so much is because mm. in this post-colonial environment, uh, in this uh, era of uh, identity and egalitarianism, which is entirely appropriate, sport... Uh, music is another and food is another, but they're not my expertise. Uh, sport is a language that is ostensibly egalitarian. It's mano-y mano. Um, it isn't fair for a whole heap of reasons, you know, yeah. from drug use to nutrition programs to training to coaching levels to facility, right? But it is ostensibly 13 on 13, mano-y mano, woman e woman if that is yes. the case, yep. right? Yep. And, and so it, it is a way to uh, communicate through a mechanism that is not speaking down or speaking up. It's very, right. So it's very powerful in that regard. It is also a delightful parable for all of the big lessons of life. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you play really well and lose, <laughs> right? Sometimes it's all about you shining as an individual. Sometimes it's about you playing your role in it. Right? So all of the things that we love about sport and uh, are equally applicable in that environment. So uh, there's all of that. And then for me personally, I... Mm, made documentaries in Africa 20 plus years ago and that went away because of the 
Asian currency crisis and whatever, that was where our money was coming from. But I always dreamed of going back into that developing space. But until digital disruption, I wasn't a doctor or a teacher, so there was no value in my skill set. It's only been in the last few years that my skill set has been marketable or valuable in those environments, and so I've left it the chance to go back. Yeah, and I, I know that when you and I were talking about this conversation, mm. you talk about pivoting and the pivot you've made from being a journalist to the, the type of work you do now. Um, and actually, I know that when you did those documentaries in South mm. Africa, you had some interesting moments. Oh, yeah. I mean, we got... Um, I spent Christmas Day... I won't bother saying the year, but I spent Christmas Day... <laughs> Um, there was a series of civil wars. Uh, the Sudans hadn't split at that point, uh, for example. And essentially, we were uh, at a border. There was all sorts of confusion. We nearly died on a number of occasions. We had a lot of uh, gunplay. And essentially, we were stamped out of one country. And then there was a no-man-zone minefield to the next country. And we couldn't get across it. So we spent Christmas Day effectively um, unassigned citizens, citizens that had been stamped out of one country and not into another. And we actually got to the other country by following goat herders through the minefield because they knew where the landmines were and were not, more importantly. Oh, wow. And so, so we followed them through. I mean, uh, yeah, there was lots of hairy moments. And uh, like <laughs> I say to people, it was simultaneously one of those experiences because it went for months. It was, and we were, to, to give context, we were making documentaries about an expedition that was the first in history to go from the Cape of Good Hope, so the, uh, the very bottom of South Africa, to Alexandria, which is on the Mediterranean Sea, so in Egypt. So we went the full length of Africa entirely off-road. Uh, and uh, yeah, extraordinary experience, terrifying. If at any point, at any point, you had come at me and said, there's a chopper, do you want to go home? I'd have jumped on that thing in a heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. I was so scared, <laughs> and it was so deadly, and I genuinely thought we weren't coming home. Having got through it, uh, it was the formative experience of my life, probably. I, this may be hard for you to wrap up in a mm. statement, because I, I, I admire your ability to communicate. <laughs> what on reflection though of that formative process and you know the journey you went on what's something that you've taken from that for the rest of these years to, to now yep i can give you i think a, a succinct answer to that and that is that our way is not the only way mm -hmm. uh, that is to say as you move through life and it can be people who look and sound very similar like you and I, who ostensibly have a lot in common, but we move through the world in our own unique ways. Well, then that is exponentially more the case if you are in Samoa or Sudan or Somalia or South America. And so uh, essentially being a journalist and all of the other work that I've done is that I'm just a student of humanity. I just like learning how people work, what drives people and what I have taken away from that experience and then leveraged into all of my other travel and all of my other learning is that I want to understand maybe 
I am doing things the very best way they can be done, or maybe I'm just doing them the very best way they can be done for me. But maybe there's some wisdom that can be drawn from, you know, thousands of years of culture, whether it be indigenous or Pacific or African culture. Um, and not only that, I just really want to spend some of my time on the planet talking to people who aren't exactly like me. Yeah. So I've just, now I, tell me if I've invented this. No, please. Or I've just heard it as you were talking. The phrase that pops into my head is magnified curiosity. Yeah. Because yeah. I feel like you were already curious, but yeah. the curiosity has just gone, let's go 10 times. Let, let me illustrate your point uh, back at you with an example. There was, when I was working for the ABC, there was a, back when the ABC had money, there was a consultant that came from the US and she said, uh, I'll let you in on a little secret. There's really only one rule that we apply. There's 10 commandments, but it essentially boils down to one rule when we are choosing talent, as they call it, people to talk on the radio or the television or whatever. And she said, um, you have to be infinitely interested in everything. And she said, you are like a Labrador puppy. You burst in and you, yeah. you know, sniff that, knock that over, run around behind that, look over there. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, I used to be embarrassed by that level of effusiveness. I used to try and suppress it. And now I don't, I just own it. And, you know, I, I am what I am and I'm not apologizing for it. So as you know, mate, I'm a strengths coach and I focus mm. on strengths. And so I'm just hearing your strengths and saying, yes, embrace that, be that, that is who you are. I'm wondering though, so dad was a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, was there anything else you wanted to do when you were younger or was it following in dad's footsteps was the, the path? No, he was quite strident in wanting me to not be a journalist. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure why. I mean, it's not a way to get rich. <laughs> I know that much. Um, uh, I mean, I think he had a, a fulfilled and interesting life. So it's hard... It, I, I, I've never actually asked why he didn't want me to, but he was quite enthusiastic for me not to do it. What, what did doing, you want to do when you were younger? Yeah, law, law. Law. I did, I did work experience at uh, Newcastle Courthouse. Yeah. And uh, I, I really liked the, I had a quite romanticized idea of, you know, um, addressing the jury and having the decision overturned, you know, and, um, bit of time working in Newcastle Courthouse squared that out of me real fast. So while you're doing um, your work experience at Newcastle Courthouse, I was at the Newcastle Herald. Oh, well, yes, that's right. I'd forgotten that. So that, that was my work experience yeah. that I did. Yeah. But yeah. of course, Isn't you know, it funny we, sliding doors, huh? Yeah. But I also had long hair and wanted to be Michael Hutchins. So that's, <laughs> that's a, uh, that's a, a fun dual ambition, uh, Newcastle Herald and Michael Hutchins. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then obviously law after experiencing that wasn't for you mm. and journalism. Yeah, I went into uh, comms at uh, you know, journalism and comms at Newcastle University and um, got a placement as you had to do work placement. And I turned up at the Maitland Mercury which was my local paper and they were lovely, but they basically said, dude, um, we haven't got time to wet nurse you, you go and find something. So I think I produced like three stories that week 
and some the the timeline's a little blurry but some months later they came back at me and said there's a cadet ship and yeah yeah great yeah mm. now i've got something that mm. i wanted to throw at you and i was sure. thinking about us catching up and that is i th growing up i thought about journalism as mm. truth mm. and it's like when you turned on the radio at six o'clock for the six o'clock news sorry turn on the radio got the tv yeah yeah sure 6pm news. 6pm news, uh, that, or if you read it in the paper, that was the truth. Mm. And in the recent years, there's a term of fake news that has started to get thrown about. Mm. Um, and there are articles out there which have clickbait and they have this sort of way of, you know, centralising whatever's going on. It bloody frustrates me mm. because it's like the truth is still there or a perspective on what's happening which is a, a element of truth but then there's all this other stuff i i just wonder where it's going and i wonder what your thoughts are about where it is now and where we are going to ensure that integrity of journalism sorry it's big question yeah big question and what i'm trying what i'm trying to do is uh a pathway that won't take up the rest of our time together to <laughs> to answer here, here is my hope rather than my fervent belief mm -hmm. here is this is what i cling to uh, to address the problem that that you've just raised when you get your first job when you're michael hutchins at the newcastle Herald, <laughs> right and you get your 66 dollars a week i'm probably showing my age and you think to yourself i can eat mcdonald's drive-through three meals a day if i want and so you do for a bit, right? And then you wash it down with beer that night and blah, blah, blah. And after nine months or 12 months or whatever, and your belly's hanging over your belt and your face is full of zits, you go, eh, I don't know if this is a healthy way forward for me. I feel like social media is the McDonald's drive through and the $66 and that people gorge themselves because they could and it didn't really matter that you ate some disgusting food from time to time because it wasn't your lifestyle. But now we're deep into that process and people are waking up and going, oh my God, if you are what you eat, then you most certainly are what you read and consume in the media. And if I don't start putting some fiber in my intellectual diet, I am going to be in deep, deep trouble. Mm, and you see mm. people like, why? Even as we are facing a global crisis because we don't have a vaccination, why is anti-vaxxing on the rise? Because facts, as you describe them, cease to have value when information became ubiquitous. Right? Yeah, so okay. once upon a time, information had value. That was what you learned. That was my expertise that I had and I shared with you. Right? Yep. Now you can Google everything. There, are, there, there is no mysteries. So information got devalued and emotion got empowered, right? Because the value is, I feel something. There's your angry face on Facebook, right? There's your happy face. So now everything is emotionally ramped up, informationally ramped down. That's how you get this, this disproportion. So we find ourselves in a situation where when people feel like they do right now, untethered, the world's out of control, everything I thought I knew is gone, conspiracy theories take hold because they give meaning. They tell you someone's in control, right? No yeah, one's yeah, in control. Yeah, yeah. You're the dude with the orange hair. You think he's running the show, right? <laughs> so um, I, what I hope is that I am, I am not 
I, neither the general population nor me particularly has any affection, if I continue the food metaphor, of eating uh, three-hat Michelin meals every night for our information, listening only to classic FM and reading only Oscar Wilde, right? Yeah. But, but at the other end of the scale, if all you are reading is Breitbart and conspiracy theories and anti-vaxxing and um, Instagram influences my fervent hope is somewhere in the middle we're going to open Subway where you can have some nice choices, some healthy choices at a reasonable access level. And so, yeah. Um, I think, I, I think, we I feel like we're flushing through. I feel like yeah, we're flushing yeah. through to some degree. Yeah. It's like, well, there's, there's not a switch. There's, no. a, there, there's a spectrum here where the pendulum's swinging to, and it's going to sit somewhere in between all that. And there's no universal answer either, right? Mm. Like it's easy to be romantic for that time of facts, right? But as you say, they were somebody's facts. There are indisputable facts. If you walk out of a second floor building, you will plummet to earth, right? Yeah. But then there are other things. Is Scott Morrison doing a good job? You can apply some facts to make your book, right? So I don't, we don't need to explain that. But what is easy to romanticize is that there was always booby magazines and there was always people and there was always what was the one news of the world or whatever, right? Yeah, so yeah. garbage has always existed as well. It's just you had to go looking for the garbage once, now the garbage finds you. Um, and I actually think the other big challenge is the confirmation bias that's running, which a lot of people aren't aware of, but they've got. And it's I'm going to I'm going to go and look for that data or that information to confirm what I already think. Yeah. And then in that, that feedback loop in that circle. And we all are, right? Mm. Uh, there's, mm. there's, there's, a, um, there's a psychological phenomenon that says what you see is all there is, right? If you live in the Philippines, everybody's Asian, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nearly everyone you see is Asian. Um, if you live in Western Sydney, you, your reality looks like a United Colours of Benetton ad, right? If you live in West Wall's End in Newcastle, you think everyone looks like you and I, right? So, yeah. so we all have confirmation bias. Where the problem comes is um, not knowing enough to know what you don't know. That is to say... Um, I've given some of the best years of my life trying to engage people who I really value, but who are doing crazy stuff online because they go, well, all I'm saying is why isn't there a shadow on the flag on the moon? I'm just raising the question. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't get to raise the question. You have to find the answer. Yeah. Yes. You know, <laughs> so. Um, it's like, I want to throw this thing out there and kick it around or I want to throw it out there and walk away. I don't even want to kick it around. Totally. And yeah. And then you say to them, uh, well, that's utterly disingenuous. No, I'm just, I'm just having a Okay, so you think you're divorced from your opinions, do you? Go out there and say you think pedophilia is all right. Mm. <laughs> see how that washes. See whether you can divorce yourself from your opinion. So um, part of what I've always struggled with, and funnily enough, I'm struggling with it right now because I'm being a bit cheeky and playing around online in my social media, you know, telling... Uh, I'm enjoying it, by the way. <laughs> some eyebrow-raising jokes and that sort of thing. And part of it always is, is that I've never known a world where my name and reputation was not attached to the media that I produced, right? Once upon a time, that looked like a byline in a newspaper. Then it was what came out of my mouth on the radio. Now there's the social media aspect of it. 
And what's hard for me is that I realise that there are lots of people uh, from different circumstances who don't actually put any cachet in their own opinion. They're just chucking it out there, you know. It's, they're just saying it because they're saying it. And I find that hard. That, that's a foreign language. To me, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think about, um, though, like you're saying, the junk food analogy. It's always been there, but it's now more readily available. Yeah. But there are still some very good sources for information. Mm. And I think sometimes it's about directing people to an alternative source. And sometimes, you know, just to throw another metaphor out there, you can lead the horse to water, but you're not going to force it to drink. So we're going to, we can put it out there, but it's up to people making those choices to whether they're going to actually read that or actually absorb that information. I know that everybody's solution to every problem is make teachers teach it in the curriculum or whatever else. And so I am not that guy. I, but what I do think is this, that the two themes that you've raised in the last five minutes here are going to be two of the most critical resources that any individual can have in the front half of the, this century. And that is, one, to actually understand critical thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to not only be able to execute it, but understand what you're doing, right? So it's not enough to be able to pass the ball. You have to understand the science of how you're passing the ball. So to understand and execute critical thinking and also to have high levels of media literacy. And uh, where I get very anxious is... Um, it's sometimes attributed to Paul Keating. Here I'm going. Here I am going to perpetuate a lie, right? So I don't know who. But let's we'll credit it with Abraham Lincoln, right? But yep. somebody said, and I requote it often, is that if somebody's got an eight-second solution for you, it's no solution because all the eight-second problems were solved three hundred years ago. <laughs> but mm. we are in a world where we are in a world where. Eight seconds is all you've got to solve my problem, man. I'm a busy guy. What you got? What you got? You got eight seconds. Solve my problem. Solve my problem. Solve my problem. And you know all you can do in eight seconds? All you can do is come to me and go, you're not the problem. That guy over there is the problem. <laughs> and I go, yeah, good. I'm up with that. Good. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good eight second answer. Right? So I'm really, really worried about this idea that in a world that only has patience for simplicity, the only way forward is to embrace complexity. Yeah, and be okay with sitting with the complexity mm. and having the deep conversations on a narrow topic as opposed to just the surface level eight-second conversations. It's the meme, it's the tweet. And again, I'm a Pollyanna, I'm an eternal optimist. One of the things that I'm hoping will come from this crisis that we're all living through is that we will in fact realize that everyone is entitled to an opinion but not all opinions are of equal value that we will indeed give some we will return some kudos to people who have given 20 years to a field of study and not give their opinion equal value to ellen or Whoopi Goldberg or Andrew Bolt or whatever else that yeah. um, that actually we will weigh opinions better and that we will continue or we will return to a world where expertise has some value. 
Yeah, I, I must admit that is something which, to be honest, I hadn't thought about. But now in hindsight, thinking about those experts getting the coverage they deserve for the years they've put in a certain field of science, of medicine, and decisions or policies being made on what they bring. My Pollyanna, to build off your phrase there, is what does that look like more broadly in everything we do? Because that would be, you know, let, let's listen to the experts, not because my uncle studied medical science, so I've got a good idea of it. No, actually, everyone's got a good, you know, hmm. let's use the experts. So let me put it to you in your field then, right? This to me is where the rubber hits the road in terms of authenticity. Mm. You have your business and your program because you are bringing a certain amount of expertise to the table, right? You, you believe that you have a special knowledge to impart in your realm, right? But that's not enough. You also spend a lot of time making that a product that people can sit and consume, right? You make it entertaining, you speak the language that people want to hear, you gamify it, all of those sorts of things. Me too, right? In, in yeah. more, all of my work. So how does one rationalize that? Do you at one end say, well, I don't actually care what got them in the door. They ate at my restaurant, right? <laughs> if, it's <the> guys, <laughs> if it's the guy spinning the sign, so be it. I know they ate good food in my restaurant, right? Or do you say to yourself, no, this, I have, this is too important for me to prostitute my message, Right. So, uh, and I'm, I'm drawing the two poles. The answer is somewhere near the equator, I think. And that's what we're all battling. But, but it's a genuine thing that I dwell upon often. How, how much do you treat information with and expertise with the gravitas that it deserves? And how much do you market it? So um, it's great to see this podcast is going to go for three hours. Um, <laughs> Part one of an eight-part series, yes. The Mazanez Show. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great conversation and a good, good question. And I think you're right. There's somewhere in the middle there where authenticity, people's BSD, their bullshit detectors are really strong. They can tell if you're not being real, you're not being honest. And I combine that with also being open and saying, this is what I know, but this is also what I don't know. Yeah. And what I don't know I'm here to help you find that out or to actually defer to someone else. So part of my role and what I do is as a facilitator, I want to facilitate the learning out of the group. And I love that. And I know what I bring is the ability to do that versus I'm mentoring you because they're two very different things. Let me share with you something that you might find useful. Certainly some people listening to this, you're welcome to steal it because I think it's absolute gold. So I had all sorts of um, first world white male middle class anxieties about going into developing nations and teaching in adverted commas, right? Mm -hmm. and, and the reality of it is all of those things were unfounded because there's actually a prejudice in even thinking that way. So but setting that to one side, my opening gambit when I'm dealing with a new group is I say, what I want you to imagine is this, that we are at a cocktail party this week at this workshop, 
And I am the dude with the tray of hors d'oeuvres, with the shrimps and the avocado crab and the blah, blah, blah. Now I know because I have a certain level of expertise and I have worked around the world, I know that everything on this plate is edible, right? And I know that I can take this plate somewhere and somebody will find something on it delicious. What I want you to do is to sample what's on that plate that I bring around this week. I don't expect you to eat every single item that is offered. What I actually hope you'll do is go, that's nice, but if I gave that a coconut treatment, that would be perfect in my restaurant here in Samoa, right? Yes. So I actually walk that through as a psychological process and say, pick it off, taste it. I'm not expecting it all to be for you. What I do hope is that A, you'll find something delicious and B, you'll then take that and improve upon it for your own personal circumstance that I can't even imagine what that circumstance is. And G, I find that's an effective opener because it empowers those. Yes. You're yes. not talking down to anybody and it actually invites them to take the morsels that you're presenting and elaborate it for their own circumstance. Can I say, I love that analogy and my build is, and when you taste this morsel, don't just taste it once. Yeah, don't just use call. it once. Because I think sometimes we can taste something like that and go, yeah, that's okay, but I'll go back to whatever else I was eating before. Or I might just try it once because if we want to use one of those, we're going to eat some of Aaron's beautiful platter of finger food. Let's actually try it over the next couple of weeks and see how it looks in my restaurant and how it works for me. hundred percent. And actually I'm sure in your business, in mine as well, that's one of the biggest challenges that mm. you have to say, you will not actually get maximum results from one engagement. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. Now I, I'm going to quickly change the subject because I've got yep. a question for you, which um, you could talk for a while on, but I just want to quickly <laughs> know your perspective, my friend. And yep. that is, Sports take a hammering over these past couple of months. Yep. Um, with major codes around the world, you know, pausing, stopping, however you want to frame it up. It's, and I know a lot of people look to the sport as their religion in some way. You know, it lifts their spirits, mm -hmm. brings them together. It's, you know, as pack animals, as humans, we come together. Um, and there's some recent reports around the future of the A-League as well, which mm -hmm. is a, a concern. Um, Very much so. I also wish we had a basketball team in Newcastle, but that's oh, another story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, mate, where, where's it going to be? Honestly, in you know, 12 months from now, six months from now. Uh, I heard somebody say on another podcast recently, I'm not in the business of predictions and forecasting. What I like to do is explore scenarios. And I feel like that's really useful because I think <laughs> making predictions is a fool's errand. But... Um, Here's what, here's what I think. The successful sports going forward, whether this be at franchise level, grassroots level, elite level, so often you see billionaires from coal mining or whatever else who get involved in sport and fail spectacularly. And the reason why they fail spectacularly is that the skill set that makes you great at moving coal trains, right, screwing people down on price, uh, clarifying your supply lines, having certainty around uh, delivery, all of those sorts of things that give you value and turn you into a billionaire in that realm, 
have no cachet in the world of sport. In the world of sport, you are selling a sense of community, a sense of connection, and a sense of hope. Mm, mm. And the sports that can, the hunger for those things has never been greater. The appetite for paying $150 for a jersey and being watching people shoot up tin cans at the weekend when they should be social isolating. Yes. The appetite for that has never been less. The sports that come out the other side of this and can embrace the format in an authentic way and resist the latter and reinvent themselves beyond that corporate mass, those are the ones with a tomorrow. Mm. I thank you so much for that. And there's a bit that I'm adding and I just mm. want to think about as well. And that is the perspectives that players are getting out of this experience. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm theorizing here, mm. but the, the journey for a lot of players, for a lot of codes over the last few years has been meteoric with um, certain conditions and pays and salaries that are just amazing compared to the average person. And this new perspective that a lot of people, you and I included, and the sports people in this process that are getting, hopefully also supports that new grounding, not just of the codes, but also of the players as well. Let me bring the conversation full circle and reiterate your point to you. So I particularly love working with para-athletes, when I'm talking about storytelling here, working with para-athletes and working with athletes in developing environments and working with women. And the reason why, and this is a very broad brush, and I mean, there are many remarkable exceptions to what I'm about to say and kudos to them. Um, we have some of them in this town. But your bog standard methodology for an elite male sports person now is you're identified at 13, you put on your weights and nutrition program at 14, you were siphoned off from the rest of the world, you were told you were special, and you have an agent who talks about how many zeros are going to be on the end of your number. It doesn't make you an interesting person, it doesn't give you perspective, it does not make you well-rounded, it does not educate you, right? Mm. If you are somebody, if you are somebody who lost their leg in a lawn mowing accident, or has had to put themselves through nursing college while trying to be captain of the Matildas or whatever else the thing is, right? You have an engagement with reality that is so much more interesting and illuminating, uh, if less profitable than, uh, than that scenario that you're talking about. And I just feel like, uh, look, Barca, we're kidding ourselves if we think, you know, the Barcelona starting 11 is not going to be worth a billion dollars in five years time. It very much is. But I do think that below that crusty elite, I think that the the sands are shifting and there are new possibilities. And I mean, part of the positioning I'm trying to think for myself is if I have this vision and if I believe this can happen, how do I happen to that process as opposed to just observe it? So it's one of the things that's on my thinking plate at the moment. Um, thank you so much for that perspective. And I am mindful of our time. And this has been, I'm going to say part one. Yeah, look, I, as, you, as you can see, I don't really like talking, but I'm more, more than happy to do it as a favour. So, no, no, I would, I would love to engage. And, and because you, like me, 
it's big ideas and big ideas demand more than glib answers. Um, inevitably, it was going to go this way. So look, any time, any circumstance, and as I say, it doesn't even have to be in this forum. We can, when we're all allowed to get together, we'll sit on a stage and talk rubbish one day. Ah, oh, that sounds like a great idea, my friend. Now, um, thank you so much. It's been... Um, Honestly, it's such a joy to talk to you, but also I feel like we haven't done justice to the impact you've made in communities and over your career as a journalism and what you do now. Um, it's been a privilege to chat, to be honest, and I um, value your perspective and value the impact you make. So um, please keep doing what you're doing. Thank you so much. Beautiful words. Thank you. And, you know, I, people like you are the ones that made me have the bravery to quit a very nice salary in a very safe government organization and go out on my own and try and do something remarkable um, to believe in my strengths. Uh, and that's that still makes me squirm to even say something like that. I don't even like talking like that, but to embrace my, my strengths and try and leverage them to do something that is beyond the ordinary. So, um, yeah, back at you. I really value what you do and I've had a blast talking to you today. Yeah, thanks, mate. And I know they're not easy decisions to make that leap. Um, oh, so I... If I'd have known COVID was coming, I might have, <laughs> uh, I might have kicked it along the road 18 months, but, you know, yeah. as I say, no, I'm looking forward to that whole fortune favouring the brave thing. <laughs> it's there. It's just a little bit further along. Um, now, just to wrap us up, uh, you have given me your definition of inspired energy, and it's what this podcast is called, and I've had that today. Do you remember what you said, or can you repeat it? <laughs> I can't remember. What did I say? As soon as you well, tell me, I'll... Well, I'm going to be... No disrespect to anyone yeah. I've asked this question to before. But I said to Tammy, I said, I love already the anticipation I have for having a chat with Aaron because his answer was, and I'd say this with all truthfulness, inspired energy is the offspring produced when dreams and determination have a passionate affair. I felt what a little... What a tosser! <laughs> who says that? What a tosser! <laughs> Mate, I want to know who wrote that for you because that is beautiful. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that uh, must have been uh, on my daily inspiration Instagram feed. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no not at all. I, I, I mean, I, I'll tell you what that articulates. Um, when you approached me about doing this, you know, I was under a, uh, a wall of stuff going on and, and where we started this conversation saying you have good moments and bad moments. And... Um, I, I was zooming out and having a lot of thoughts about that fortune favoring, you know, going out, what does it mean? What is it? And I had inspired energy and I have inspired energy, but um, inspired energy was what motivated me to cut my safety ropes and do what I did a little over uh, 12 months ago. And that is because um, I had drive and, and I had a dream. And so what is that if not inspired energy? Yeah, hundred <clears throat> percent. I, I can hear it in your voice, and I can um, feel it, and that's the more important part. So, thank you. No, thank you. It's been I'm, a blast. Awesome, mate. Um, have a great rest of the week. Uh, see you in twenty twenty two or whenever it is. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get within one point five meters of each other. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, mate. That was such a great conversation and I hope you got just as much out of that 
conversation as I did with Aaron. And if you did, please share it on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and make sure you tag Aaron and myself and use the hashtag Inspired Energy. And look out for future episodes of the podcast on your favorite platform every Monday.